Dini, could you mute?
Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Ground Waves. I just want to remind everyone, please, to mute yourselves if you haven't already. I want to welcome you on this momentous eve of the U.S. presidential election. There are many uncertainties enervating the Jewish community right now, a community already drained, like others, from the demands and the discomforts of the pandemic. The safety of American Jews under either a Democratic or Republican administration is a source of great concern. The polarization of Jewish communities and families over the political situation in our country, over the urgency of social change, over the role of Israel in contemporary Jewish life, has many worried about Jewish unity. Lurking beneath all of this is a fundamental question about the nature of American Judaism itself. In his 2013 book, American Post-Judaism, Shaul Magid argues that while they are core to the global story and they catalyzed robust American Jewish engagement and identification, the stories of the Shoah and of the establishment of the State of Israel and its continued unfolding are not our stories. They are not the core stories that narrate the meaning of American Jewish life or the essence of American Jewish identity. In what's often been described as the struggle for the soul of American Jewry, what's notably absent is our foundation story, our organizing sacred myth that gives shape and purpose to our existence here. And this absence is even more keenly felt in this dramatic moment. What are the prompts for the writing of the American Jewish story? To Magid, there are two main ones, and they still beg for reckoning. Unlike other Jewish communities around the world, Jews arrived in America already emancipated. We didn't struggle for our freedom here. It was assumed. And along with our freedom to live as Jews came the expectation that we would fulfill our responsibilities as citizens and assume our rightful Americanization, which we did and which we continue to do with gusto. The second prompt of the American Jewish story is that the United States is the only major Jewish diaspora where we have never been the most, in his words, othered other. While anti-Semitism has featured continuously in some fashion in American culture, it was always overshadowed by a pernicious racism targeting black Americans and rooted in the history of slavery, and to a lesser but clear degree, other non-white Americans. That left the Jewish community to ask where we fit in the American family. Are we white? Are we a race? But also, whereas in Europe, anti-Semitism was often the fuel of Jewish identity, in America, it would not be the motivating force of affiliation, leaving us to wrestle with the question of what would, in fact, motivate American Jewish identity and engagement, a question that still vexes us today. My guest tonight, Yehuda Kurtzer, whom I'll formally introduce in just a few moments, recently published a book called The New Jewish Canon which he edited with Claire Suffren, Associate Professor of Jewish Studies at Northwestern University. I highly recommend making room on your bedside table for it and jumping into the conversations that it provokes, as the editors acknowledged the collection's goal of stimulating discussion and debate over both its concept and its content. They raise yet another prompt for the still unwritten story framing the American Jewish experience. Modern Jewish life is a paradox, they explain. On the one hand, we enjoy an unprecedented feeling of being at home and settled in this country, a feeling of belonging, which is radically different from the feeling felt from earlier generations with the disruptions and destructions of an earlier Jewish life. And yet this very stability 
has also produced an unprecedented amount of Jewish diversity and creativity in the realms of religious practice, ideology, and institutional life, which is both a blessing and a burden. It's a blessing in that it's opened up new possibilities around the questions of who is a Jew and what being Jewish means and how Jews gather for shared experience. But it's a burden in that it's created instability around notions of Jewish authenticity and authority. It's heightened the tensions around defining Jewishness based on what we say it is versus what Jews actually do. While the twin dramas of the Holocaust and the founding of the State of Israel serve as defining moments for all modern Jewish consciousness, the increasingly eclectic, rapidly evolving, and innovative arenas for Jewish identity building and expression here in the United States, which include politics, theology, ritual practice, ideology, social integration, and technology, have intensified the need for a more expansive and a more localized American Jewish narrative. But what is that story that will convey what American Jewish life means and how American Jews feel about being Jewish? And how will we understand the entanglement of the Jewish story with the deepening story of America itself, one of increased polarization, particularly in the political realm? Issues ranging from support for Israel, immigration, and social justice are surfacing deeper rifts not only between Jews, but between Americans, which changes the equation when it comes to writing a singular American Jewish story. As Professor Noam Pianko concludes in his commentary in the New Jewish Canon, once the struggle over what it means to be an American Jew is linked so intimately with what it means to be an American, Jew versus Jew tensions will enter a far more publicly contentious and internally divisive stage. Yehuda suggests that at the moment, the defining narrative of American Jewish life is the extraordinary pace of change that keeps the nature of Jewishness and Jewish engagement here in a continuous and highly fluid state of becoming. Will that itself be our story? Or will something else emerge to capture and convey the essence and experience of Jews and Judaism in America? We've yet to answer those questions. Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Yehuda is a leading thinker and author on the meaning of Israel to American Jews, on Jewish history and Jewish memory, and on questions of leadership and change in American Jewish life. 
Yehuda has grown the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America to become a pioneering research and educational center for the leadership of North American Jews, where I'm proud to serve on the rabbinic faculty as well. Yehuda teaches in its many platforms for rabbis, lay leaders, Jewish professionals, leaders of other faith communities, and hosts Hartman's Identity Crisis podcast. Yehuda holds degrees from Harvard and Brown and is a former faculty member at Brandeis. In addition to the new Jewish canon, he's also the author of Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past, as well as numerous articles and essays and is a prolific voice on social media. Yehuda, welcome to Sha'ar and welcome to Ground Waves. And though you can't see them all, many of those who are here tonight are active participants in Hartman programs and share my excitement and gratitude at having you with us tonight. Thanks for having me. It's a delight and an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Well, there is so much to talk with you about, so let's let's jump right in and make the most of our time together. You are recognizing that the American Jewish community is hardly what we would call monolithic. What do you think the stakes are for American Jews in tomorrow's presidential election? What might the challenges and opportunities be for the American Jewish community in the event of a Biden victory or in the event of a Trump victory? Yeah, it's a lightweight moment to be having this conversation. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that earlier on you talked about, uh, right when you started, you spoke about the anxious moment uh, that I think we all find ourselves in. Uh, and the first thing I want to say is, uh, you know, I've been, comp- I've been thinking a lot about the difference between what this moment felt like four years ago on the eve of the, uh, the 2016 election. Uh, and the dominant experience I remember uh, from that election was not just the Trump victory, but uh, but the surprise that so many felt, um, especially in the predominantly liberal uh, American Jewish community, the real sense of shock uh, about the Trump victory, what it reflected about America. In fact, that evening after the election, I had already been scheduled to be at B'nai Jeshurun to give a lecture. Um, that was some bad scheduling, um, but I obviously couldn't give that talk that I was supposed to give and instead gave a kind of uh, a, a talk in, in what felt at the time like a shiva. Um, and really started to process with people what happens when the story of America is not quite the one that we thought it was. So the first thing I would say is, and and in contrast, I think for all the anxiety that many of us feel about what's going to happen tomorrow, I think there is a different level of preparedness, um, a kind of a sense of foreboding, uh, anticipating what's what might happen. Um, that that is a result of the of what for many was a kind of shock and trauma of four years ago. And so the first thing I would say is that I think that the first set of stakes, almost regardless of who wins the election, um, uh, are psychological in nature. Um, I think we are on the, uh, we are all collectively holding, uh, both individually and collectively holding a tremendous amount of anxiety. And I'm, I'm actually quite concerned about, um, about the mental health of our community uh, collectively um, right now, and combination of pandemic plus election uh, with all of these results. But if we wanna really unpack like what's at stake um, for the Jewish community as a result of this election, I, I'm reminded early on in the Trump administration, a friend of mine uh, said to me something very wise. She said, we're gonna have to determine quickly, she identified the Democratic Party. Um, she said, we're gonna have to determine really quickly which are the political consequences of any Republican winning an election and which are which is the stuff that that reflects um, either uh, the, the the shifting of moral issues around which we have to be indignant and prevent and where are the changes in political or democratic norms and she said if we don't parse the difference between that um, everything is going to look equally scandalous I think in retrospect that was prophetic and just to use as an example, 
it is a violation of democratic norms to not approve one president's uh, uh, constitutionally legitimate right to appoint a Supreme Court justice and to, um, and to instead allow a different president to do that. That's a violation of norms. But it's not that surprising that, um, that President Trump nominates three, the top three individuals listed by the Federalist Society as a Republican president um, who are the obvious Republican appointees. But I think that there has been a little bit of a collapsing uh, between a sense of urgency for those who are fighting the president's agenda, between those things that you have to basically concede because you've lost an election versus those things that have been real losses. And I, I think the first, that's, that's one, um, differentiating between political battles, moral battles, and norms. But the other, the bigger piece that I, that I would want to talk about is how do we as a Jewish community uh, acknowledge the difference between short-term urgent issues regardless of who wins the presidency and what the larger set of moral concerns are or more challenges that I think we're facing as a Jewish community regardless of who wins this election. And I'll, I'll list four, I'll list them briefly and we can, if you wanna unpack them further, we can. The first is um, a big American conversation that Jews are a part of on what is truth and what is narrative. Um, and what I mean by that is not just the whole business of fake news, but I think many American Jews are really trying to figure out which story of America are we in. Uh, I think, um, are, you know, it, you, you, as you alluded to in Shaul Magid's work, I think many American Jews for the last few years have started to wonder, maybe the story we told ourselves about America is not quite the story that was right. Certainly the, un, the, the reckoning around race is forcing many American Jews to say, was I a beneficiary of something that wasn't quite as good for other people as it was for my family? So I think, I think that lingers regardless of who is president. Um, so that's one. I think a second, which I want, I definitely want to spend time with you on tonight, is the question of collectivity. To what extent are we connected to each other as a Jewish community? I think the experience of watching um, this partisanship map in such deep ways onto our Jewish community and a sense of the people with whom I'm in solidarity are those I vote with rather than those who share my religion has huge consequences um, for a long time to come. I think a third is what are the right kinds of Jewish politics? You know, uh, everybody in this election is using the terminology of Jewish values. Um, the Trump campaign is leans heavily into a certain set of Jewish values, but beyond the question of um, kind of who's good for the Jews is, do we want to do we want to be a community that embraces the the piece of our history that thinks in terms of revolutionary politics, or do we want to go back to slow moving politics, which are a huge legacy of our history as well? And then the fourth is the question of the Jewish people and the family of nations. Where does Israel fit fit into the story? Now those I'm, I'm mentioning those because in some ways, I don't in in some ways I don't think it totally matters with whether Biden or Trump wins for those to continue to be the long-term moral and political agenda for us as a Jewish community in America. What the difference is that if that the sense of urgency about particular issues will feel quite different um, for the majority of American Jews if Biden wins the election. It will be a kind of lifting of a little bit of a weight of a sense of urgency around a specific set of issues, but I don't think it in any way exhausts the divisions that have arisen that are much bigger. I wonder if one of the other, um, from the, those four, you know, all incredibly important pieces, regardless of who, as you say, will remain urgent and incredibly important, regardless of who wins. But um, one factor that may that may surface is, depending on who wins, the question of motivation. 
and the willingness to engage in those issues. I don't know, but I, I would imagine that that would have an impact on, uh, on the inspiration to engage as deeply as we need to. Let's pick up on the thread of, yeah. of collectivity and uh, the real sense of polarization within the Jewish community and within Jewish families. Um, a lot of commentators attribute this to gaps in perspectives on Israel, social justice priorities. Um, what are some of the other pieces that you think are straining the unity of American Jews today? And I, I just want to flag your article recently in The Atlantic, where you offered a, a, a very different understanding of the picture of ultra-Orthodox defiance of social distancing and mask wearing in Brooklyn um, as a breakdown of citizenship and a crisis of democracy as opposed to a crisis of Jewish values or, you know, Jewish unity. And it gave, I think, a lot of pause to people in the Jewish community who were outraged and even really embarrassed mm -hmm. by that behavior. So maybe you can refer to your piece and your insights. And yeah, I mean, you can still be embarrassed and outraged at uh, at, at anti-mask rallies in uh, in Williamsburg. But I, I, I want to, what I was trying to argue in, in, the, in my piece in The Atlantic is that uh, what, the narrative that the ultra-Orthodox community tells about itself in America is one of counterculture and resistance, right? We're uh, resisting assimilation. Look, liberal Jews assimilate, we don't. And what I was trying to argue is that actually these behaviors are quite American. Um, and what they, and the idea that um, the society can't demand of me to do something I don't want to do, or that there's some liberal conspiracy that is demanding of us to um, to relinquish our rights. Um, it, it it tragically tells a much larger story about the the very narrative about rights and obligations that are prevalent in America today. Um, and uh, and in my article, I said like this is. This is a this is a, a breakdown that has happened almost across our democracy, where so many of our political leaders are incredibly reluctant to tell us as Americans, this is what is obligated of you. And I'm sorry that it's going to require a little bit of compromising of your rights, but we've had presidents who have used the language of obligation, Lincoln, FDR, Kennedy, to name three, um, who actually looked, turned to the American people in moments of crisis and said, no, you actually have to sacrifice for the greater good. And so when you see, um, uh, you know, the radio host who was kind of starting up these pro these these protests in Brooklyn, and there were Trump, there obviously were Trump flags, and when was using the same language that appeared at Trump rallies, the, the notion that that reflects a resistance of assimilation has it backwards. And I think that the bigger problem that we have as a Jewish community, this is something you allude to at the beginning, is a problem born of unbelievably good conditions, which is, you know, the story for the Jewish people in the 20th century was a search for home. That was true for, um, you know, between the years 1900 and 1950, almost everybody in the Jewish world moves, um, with the exception mostly of American Jews. Um, but almost everybody moves. Um, and so the whole 20th century is a journey towards home. And the challenges are increasingly that are true for American Jews and Israeli Jews are in the 21st century is a totally different set of challenges. What happens when you're actually at home? How do you behave when you're at home? And sometimes when you have a, you know, it's my colleague Tamara Twil, who I know is coming on your program. Um, when you, when you're a guest, it it changes your disposition and your relationship to your place. When you're at home, that's when it's a real test of your moral character. When you're in charge, you, you know, it turns out like when you know, people find out when they're like first-time homeowners or they've moved into their own apartment. That's when you find out how neat you really are. 
right? How responsible you are um, for for thinking of yourself as the as the custodian of that experience. So I, I think that the real challenge that has emerged for American Jews with other American Jews is that we are playing out the worst or maybe just the descriptive um, realities of disparate stories of American of Americanness right now. And um, and it's uh, therefore it's not surprising that in a in a highly partisan country, American Jews are enacting the same partisan tensions, and that very little seems to hold together, seems to organize between American Jews some sense of loyalty and responsibility to one another. I alluded to this before um, that you know you ask if you ask progressive Jews who are your significant others. Right, the it, the the answer is almost always my progressive allies, uh, in multi-faith, multi-ethnic coalitions. And if you ask conservative-leaning Jews, uh, politically conservative-leaning Jews, who are your significant others, they may say evangelicals. And and the notion that we are each other as a Jewish people's significant other, and the fact that we are embarrassed by each other is a good sign. <laughs> means that we still see ourselves as responsible for one another. Um, that's diminishing because because we have managed to become at home in such a way that we can enact the, the same social divisions that are taking place across America. And do you have thoughts on ways to mend some of that increasing alienation? You know, um, I guess it's, it's a particular gut punch that this happens in the pandemic because one of the other things that we have been stripped of are some of the technologies that Jews and Americans have had for a long time to have to sit across the table from people who we did really disagree with. For Jews, that's Pesach, and for Americans, that's Thanksgiving. Um, and we don't have that this year. And I, it feels very, very heavy um, that uh, it's like what you're supposed to do is like get into an argument with your uncle at Thanksgiving what you're supposed to do but there's something humanizing that emerges out of that experience and i and i think we're, we've lost that a little bit um so one thing i think that i think that i think we need to do is um yeah the basics of education and encounter it's not as it's not as simple or as trivial as like go read a hillbilly elegy that was kind of a trivial way in 2016 of saying there are people i don't understand there is more proximity that is available to us. I, I felt of late um, really curious to open up a conversation in ways that I hadn't for a long time with ultra-Orthodox Jews in America. Not, because the majority of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews are not protesting the wearing of masks. They're not. And many of them are embarrassed as well. Mm -hmm. And if we don't find a way, and they still also may be Trump voters, and we're going to have to find ways to signal where is the place of overlap. Maybe not today, maybe not next week, uh, but down the line, I think that's a piece of it. Um, I also think, and this is a you know much larger conversation, even those of us who claim to believe in pluralism have, it's been a while since we as a Jewish community have really done the work of pluralism, uh, really advocated for it, really recognized that it's actually a radical theology to believe that God can believe two things at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, pluralism has become very bourgeois, it's become very elite. Uh, it, pluralism, pluralist communities sometimes homogenize across difference. And if we're really going to make a case for pluralism, we have to, we got to create some sharp edges on it, make it uncomfortable, make it radical. 
Yehuda, let's talk for a few minutes about something that used to actually bring the Jewish community together in very predictable ways. Um, I'm referring to anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. We just marked the second anniversary of the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh to claim the life of 11 Jews. The AJC also just released its first ever State of Anti-Semitism in America report, surveying not just the Jewish community, but also uniquely the general American population. And in the report, American Jews, regardless of age, political leaning, or religious affiliation, are still deeply concerned about anti-Semitism, and a plurality believe that it's on the rise. And the shared feeling is that the threat is coming both from the far right and the far left, with more American Jews saying it's coming from the right in the Republican Party and fewer from the left in the Democratic Party. But it, more and more Jews are avoiding certain public places or activities out of concern for their safety. And the report even said that in the last year, more than a third of Jews who were polled have concealed their Jewishness in public in some way, maybe hiding a Magain David or taking off a kippah. What's your read on the state of anti-Semitism in the United States today and the sources from which it's emerging? Yeah, this is a, um, you know, one of the things that Dini, we've talked about at Hartman before um, is our institution was built on a kind of allergy to the crisis narrative. Um, deep in the, in, the, in the bones of our institution was uh, the postulate that we can either be Jews who, are, who build our identities based on a victim consciousness, or we can be Jews who build our identities based on a covenantal consciousness. And for, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a team covenantal. And it's really remarkable to live in a moment where we have to, you can still advocate for the covenantal, but if you can't find empathy for the crisis, you're going to be irrelevant because that's where the state of mind of so many Jews is. So I, I'm not, I, I don't want to make light of or, or diminish um, the, the, the rise of anti-Semitism globally, which I think is quite real. Although I, I want to flag that I'm nervous when anti-Semitism when instead of when when in response to anti-Semitism, we actually abandon our covenantal goals for who we want to be as a people. It has that effect on us. It doesn't just organize us together. It also damages our our capacity to think about ourselves as independent moral agents. Because once you're a victim, you can kind of do whatever you need to do. I think um, Deborah Lipstadt, uh, her book Anti-Semitism Here and Now, makes the argument that anti-Semitism basically just thrives. Whenever you have conditions of social or political unrest or anxiety, it's like a, I think she refers to it as a fungus. Um, so when you have hospitable conditions, it, it continues to reappear and to lurk. And and I and and part of the reason anti-Semitism makes sense is because, like any kind of conspiracy theory, anti-Semitism is basically a conspiracy theory. Like any conspiracy theory, it answers complicated social problems with a very neat and pat explanation. Right? If I can point to you to the invisible hand behind a progressive turn is George Soros, I can then exhaust myself of any moral or political responsibility for the conditions um, that we found ourselves in. And um, what makes me most concerned, it is, I, you know, you can say it's more on this, more on the political right than on the political left, but there are weird ways in which the political right and political left converge. And, and the farther you go on both extremes, the more comfort there is with conspiracy theories and inevitably the Jews locate themselves in those conspiracy theories. Lipstadt also says, by the way, that one of the things that differentiates anti-Semitism from other forms of racism is that oftentimes other forms of racism um, assume that there's a boundary between us and them and that our job is to police that boundary. Whereas anti-Semitism presumes that the Jews are already inside. 
And our job is not to hold them out, but it's to burrow them out. Um, so it's a, it's a particular type of conspiracy theory that has to sow fear in the society. And that's all that language of you will not, Jews will not replace us is because they're already here and they're, they're doing something to damage the society from the inside. The thing that concerns me really most um, in America is, um, again, is the kind of partisan enabling of this. Um, when you said the majority of Jews, for instance, believe that anti-Semitism is on the political right, well, that may be an empirically correct analysis. It may just also be that the majority of Jews are on the political left. And so, and the, the minority of Jews who are on the political right have a very different theory of anti-Semitism. And when, what happens when, if, if the only anti-Semitism you're concerned about is on the other side of the political aisle, you're not fighting anti-Semitism, you're trying to win elections. <laughs> and you're using the fact that the other side is, 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 is tolerating anti-Semitism as a means of delegitimating them. Now, I think that there is serious work being done by folks on the political left to truly try to ask and to analyze why, does, why has anti-Semitism become tolerated in their midst, but not enough serious work. You know, I think... Um, I think it becomes really easy for people um, to use excuses like, well, that person can't be an anti-Semite regardless of what he or she said because, you know, they, they were at my house for Shabbat dinner. Or the president can't be an anti-Semite because he has Jewish grandchildren. Well, that's not how any of this works. It's not about, you know, this isn't about ethics of proximity. It's about conspiratorial ideas that, that, that can get weaponized and, and can be really dangerous. So um, that that work is just not being done, and be, and it's because there's so much expediency to political allyship. And um, although I am more concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism as it relates to white nationalism, I am really concerned about the casual ways in which um, in which anti-Zionism, which I don't believe is anti-Semitism. I don't think it's the right question. It's not. Is it anti-Semitism? It's when is it anti-Semitism? I'm really concerned as well about the, the casual way in which it is brushed aside. No, there's no version of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Well, if you're not doing that, you're not actually doing the work to figure out where your own political ideologies can, can really go astray and can contribute to, this, to the rise of this form of hatred. Yehuda, something else that we have spoken about at our Hartman retreats in recent years has been the changing landscape of Jewish identity and changing patterns of Jewish participation in Jewish life, religious patterns, communal patterns. And some of that plays into what we were just speaking about and the sort of effects or lack of effects of some of the rise in anti-Semitism or experienced rise in anti-Semitism and the way it's either galvanizing or not galvanizing towards Jewish unity. But I wonder if we can talk about that for a minute. What kind of trends do you see emerging in these changing patterns of engagement? And what do they portend for the American Jewish community, for American Jewish leadership in particular? You know, Dini, I think, um, you know, I look at the work that you've been doing and, um, and there's something very, very ahead of the curve in the way that you've positioned your rabbinic leadership. I'm sorry to call you out in this way, but I'm complimenting <laughs> I, you. I think I'm going to be okay with it. <laughs> yeah. um, which is to recognize that like, instead of, instead of either trying to sustain 20th century institutions for 21st century Jews, in instead of trying to figure out how, you know, 
Another way of saying it is much of the infrastructure of Jewish life is fundamentally conservative, lowercase c, by which it means that there, it was built for a certain time. And our job is trying to coerce people into the identity infrastructure that served 20, 20th century Jews, because we have all sorts of economic and financial reasons to do so. Like if we don't do that, then uh-oh, what's going to happen to the synagogue property and the membership model? And, um, and the willingness to say, all right, I don't, you don't get to, if you're a Jewish leader, you don't get to pick the Jews. That's actually like, that's like what comes with the business. <laughs> because these are the Jews and your job is to serve them and to provide for them and to take care of them. Um, I think that there, there already is a trend in Jewish leadership of, of recognizing that, of saying instead of trying to make our, and, and instead of trying to make our people be something else, how do I enable them to use Judaism to acknowledge the basic anthropological needs that have not changed for human beings, which are all of us are in search of community meaning and purpose. And we as rabbis or as educators are the people who can be the gateway to bridge that tradition, to provide people with a sense of community meaning and purpose. So what, what inevitably happens is that the pace of change around identity or affiliation always outpaces the infrastructure. <laughs> And our job is to is to remind ourselves constantly of the anthropological needs and to not be so constantly wedded to the conservative infrastructure needs, because whenever you do that, you know, you know, there's always like this dance between is Judaism what the Jewish people do or is it something separate from that? And the answer is probably a little bit of both. Right. The Jews, you know, the Jews are worshiping the golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai. That doesn't mean that Judaism is the worship of the golden calf. You're allowed to be mad sometimes at the Jewish people for their failure to observe the covenant. But part of that story also is Moses saying to God, if you're going to kill the people, take me out of your story. That we are, that the, the people's own vicissitudes are part of the story also. So I, I think that there's a lot to say here around the what's what's created these changes. Most of it, again, is at homeness. But we... We, we just are watching a community evolving faster than we have categories to process. And the work that we have as Jewish communal leaders is to continue to excavate and mine from our tradition to be able to, ena to enable our people to, to still address their most basic anthropological and spiritual human needs. I, I, uh, I appreciate so much you identifying my work and Shar as, as trying to sort of identify how to do that um, mm -hmm. and and wrestling with that. And it's been, as I've said many, many times, uh, just a huge honor to be able to participate in how you are helping to convene leaders and communities through the Institute in order to engage more deeply and more authentically in exactly that process. So that leads me to, to ask you, Huda, as we begin to wind down, can you share with us a little bit about what some of the current programmatic priorities are at the Hartman Institute and how you see the organization investing its intellectual capital over the next five years? Yeah. Or so? Um, so one of the one of the big projects that we've undertaken, I think the, the project that built the Institute for the last 10 years was on Israel, our I Engage project, trying to stand in the breach between American Jews and Israel. Over the last two or three years, we have really shifted, continuing doing that work, but have really shifted to focus on basically identical set of questions that American Jews need to be asking about America. 
what is the nature of our obligations to this place? What does it mean for us to be at home in this place? The Jewish identity questions that we talked about before. And we just did, we just completed, it's all online now, a two-week symposium on Judaism, citizenship, and democracy as a lead-up to the election to ask these kinds of big philosophical and religious questions. What is the role of a, of a Jewish citizen in a democracy? Um, these are, these are kind, there's, there is, um, there's this weird, this weird reality that uh, we have a giant bookshelf that describes for the Jewish people the encounter between the Jewish people and homeland in the land of Israel, and that's called Zionism. And there is no comparable body of work, theoretical body of work, of American Jews describing aspirationally what it is that we think we're doing here in America. In fact, most of that body of work you'd class under the category of like diaspora. But we ain't, this, this ain't, it may not be homeland, but it ain't diaspora. Mm -hmm. So um, I think a big project of ours for, for the coming years is to really build that Torah, uh, a real serious Torah uh, of American democracy. And I think the other is, you know, this, this old pluralism story. You know, we, we did pluralism for a long time. We got very good as a Jewish community on being pluralistic about things we don't care about, like God or Shabbat. Um, but actually, when we became hyper-political, it turns out that the same tools that were at our disposal, we have no idea how to, how, to, how to work with them. And so I think another, you know, old new project of the Hartman Institute is a, is a deep investment in, in Jewish pluralism, really for the sake of the Jewish people. That's a, a beautiful, hopeful uh, way to end our conversation tomorrow night, given uh, the events of tomorrow and, uh, and the way we've talked about how our own story is being told against the backdrop of uh, similar yeah. larger currents. Yehuda, my last question to you. Um, most people who are listening to us right now probably don't realize that you're also an incredibly active chef who publishes recipes and menus online all the time. So I just have to ask you, what was for dinner tonight? Uh, tonight, I on Monday, it's like one of these times where I've repurposed Shabbat leftovers, which is its own type of like chop challenge, what's in the fridge. Right. Um, I all, we also we do a lot we've done a lot of like impossible burgers and beyond burgers during the pandemic that's the big shift yeah. in our family was from ground beef to um, fake fake beef um, so tonight I repurposed the udon noodles from Shabbat into an amazing noodle salad uh, with all sorts of fresh vegetables and we made we took impossible burgers and turned them into lettuce wraps and that was great sounds awesome it was great Yehuda, thank you so much for your time and especially for your skill, your talent, your commitment to creating the kind of space that you are through the Institute and well beyond for substantive Jewish discourse around Jewish identity, Jewish responsibility here in North America and in Israel. It's uh, an enterprise and, as I said, an organization that I'm very proud to be a part of and so proud to have brought you into this setting, into Grand Wives, into Sha'ar for meaningful learning and reflection as you've shared with us. So. Thank you. Thanks really, for having me. We look forward to uh, to more collaborations in the future. Absolutely. Thanks. Okay. Bye, Latoya. Done.
Done. In my opening reflections, I spoke about the need for the foundational American Jewish story. And apart from what the content of that story ought to be, another urgent and fascinating question is, who will get to author that story? In another of Yehuda's essays in the New Jewish Canon, he wonders about whose voice speaks with authority about what it means to be Jewish here. Is it the voice of religious leaders prescribing what it means to live as a Jew? Is it the voice of communal leaders, foundations, and, phil and philanthropists 
promoting certain social and cultural agendas? Is it the voice of sociologists recording the metrics of Jewish identity and ascribing to them meaning and value? Is it the voice of academics analyzing Jewish behavior and thought as it evolves relative to earlier models? Is it Jewish people themselves and the choices and priorities expressed in their lived experiences? Should more attention be given to those whose Jewish commitments reflect a loyalty to historic patterns and paradigms for Jewish life? or to those who are evolving new and often discontinuous frameworks for Jewishness in the 21st century? And does the size of each camp matter? The battle over continuity and change is not a new one. As Yehuda himself noted in his reflections, even Avraham, as we read in last week's Parsha, was concerned about Jewish continuity, about how he would be able to translate his calling and his journey into a meaningful and sustainable story to frame the lives of his descendants. Where the boundaries live between individual Jews and the Jewish community is an ancient and ongoing dilemma, as is the one about the boundaries between our Jewish story and the one being lived all around us. In last month's re-release of Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, he analyzes whether there have been any shifts since the first publishing of his assertion 20 years ago that American civic engagement and community involvement declined dramatically in the second half of the 20th century. He concludes that the decline has continued uninterrupted. The ongoing fraying of social and communal ties has contributed to growing income inequality, political polarization, and what he calls cultural individualism. But he expresses a deep dream one that I echo and pray is not a fantasy, that our current sense of the urgency for collective action will lead to meaningful change. Maybe our sense of just how deeply divided we really are will inspire us to restore and mend our broken society. In the wake of 9-11, the dramatic increase in American social capital, that is the impulse to be more engaged with community organizations and communal efforts. That dramatic increase after 9-11 vanished within six months. Hardly an encouraging precedent. It's too soon to tell how the pandemic will affect our long-term social capital, but we do know that it's exposed long festering wounds in our society. With the unique magnitude of the continued assault on our physical safety and on our national unity, together with the unparalleled opportunity for sustained connection afforded us by the internet, we just might awaken to our potential to make longer lasting positive changes. Our own Jewish story will play out against this American story, both the extent of our fractures and how we'll use the tools available to us to repair them. May tomorrow's election illuminate pathways towards a narrative of national healing and of collective and proud American Jewish destiny.
So beautiful. Done your music choices tonight. Spot on. I want to offer a couple of brief announcements before we conclude our program with our prayer as we always do. Next week on Ground Waves, we'll be honored to welcome the Attorney General of Colorado, Phil Weiser, with whom we'll have a chance to unpack the events of tomorrow and the rest of this week and try to debrief and understand the story that will have started to unfold uh, in our country. This coming Wednesday night, our Justice Beit Midrash welcomes Tamara Man-Twil, who is also a Hartman Fellow uh, with an expertise in American democracy, citizenship, and civic education. She's going to be leading us in a presentation that she's titled, Keeping Our Home, How Do We Restore Trust and Confidence After Civic Rupture? She'll guide us in some readings of Philip Roth, Marilyn Robinson, and Frederick Douglass, to discuss how the act of civic rupture affects our lives and to offer ways to move forward towards restoration. So please join us at a special time for our Justice Bait Midrash this week, 7.30 p.m. to 9. We'll take the first half hour to just have a chance to talk and to connect and to um, share a little bit of our impressions of the events that will transpire over the next couple of days. And at 8 p.m., Dr. Twill will address us. Saturday night, I invite you all to bring an end to Shabbat together and a welcoming of the coming week with Havdalah. You'll see the links and information for that and everything else that I've mentioned on our Sha'ar email. There are lots of new faces and lots of new people who are with us tonight. If you want more information about Sha'ar and other upcoming programs, please put your email into the chat and we'll be sure to uh, include you on our email distribution list or you can always go to our website, www.sha'arcommunities.org and add your name to uh, our list there. Anyone who wishes to stick around for a few minutes after we end tonight to schmooze, to say hello, to check in with each other, please feel free to do so. It'll be lovely to have a chance to greet one another. We're gonna bring our program tonight to a close with a prayer composed by Rabbi David Mavorach Seidenberg, a prayer for the eve of the election. Words that I have very slightly adapted from his composition. He offers these words of tefillah. Behold, we are intending through our votes, through our prayers, to seek peace for this country, as it is written in Yumiyahu, seek the peace of the city where I cause you to roam and pray for her to Adonai. For in her peace, you all will have peace. 
May it be your will, Adonai, that votes be counted faithfully. And may you count our votes as if we had fulfilled this verse with all our power. May you give a listening heart to whomever we elect. And may it be good in your eyes to raise for us a good government that will bring healing, justice, and peace to all living in this land and to all the world and upon you, Ishalayim. A government that will honor the image of God in all humanity and in creation, for rulership is yours. Just as we participate in the election, so may we merit to do good works and to repair the world through all our own efforts and through the activism which we pledge to undertake on behalf of all living creatures in remembrance of the covenant of Noah's waters to protect and not to destroy the earth and her plenitude. Give to all the peoples of this country the strength and the will to pursue righteousness, to seek peace as a unified force, to uproot racism and violence, and to make healing, good life and peace flourish here and throughout the world. And fulfill for us the verse from Tehillim, May the pleasure of Adonai, our God, be upon us, and establish the work of our hands for us. May the work of our hands endure. everyone. Thank you, Dan. Thank you again to Yehuda Kurtzer. So wonderful to be with you all. See you soon, I hope. Stay strong and in good faith.